Live from the Mecca Mormonism in Salt Lake City, this is Heart of the Matter, where we're learning together how to live as Christians in the age of fulfillment. I'm Sean McCraney, your host. We're still in quarantine, so this is a pre-tape program, and uh, you're watching it on a Monday night, and I think that night is May 4th, so welcome. So, to the doctrine of the Trinity, we hit part one last week. Uh, it is a great topic for Christians to talk about because it opens us up to having to admit we have differences, to admit that we see things differently, and to choose whether we're going to love each other amidst those differences or not. That's one of the reasons I, I appreciate the, the uh, whole discussion on God and his makeup, the ontology of God, uh, because we learn about ourselves there. And we learn if we want to string people up because they disagree with us. We learn if you want to continue to watch uh, our show because I differ with you perhaps on some things. It's just a fascinating thing. And I really think God has, uh, has set it up this way. I think this is his intention and he hasn't made knowing him perfectly and his makeup perfectly clear. And so we had, we have different things coming in. You know, uh, I suggest that in the day of fulfillment, all believers ought to consider taking a step back from the dogmatic demands of denominationalism. Just, you know, just take a step back and take a breath and decide, okay, I understand that you don't see this. I understand you don't agree with it or you don't accept it. Even I understand that you attack it. I'm going to love you anyway. Let's just let the spirit guide. But instead, we get wrapped up in our flesh and it doesn't often work that way. I want to use the, the demanded doctrine of the Trinity, and I call it that specifically that because it is demanded. When you sign a statement of faith of many religious organizations, you have to say, I, I accept the Trinity as the description of God. And I want to use that as an example of why we ought to consider abandoning demanded doctrines really of any kind. And I know that's troubling to some of you. You think that I'm being super liberal, ecumenical, uh, syncretist, syncret, syncretic. Um, I'm not. I have my belief. I read the Bible, as you, same Bible as you do. You have yours. And we come together on many things, but we also differ on many things. The question is, can you love? The demand of the Trinity from others can and does often serve as a divider among believers. I don't know many people who say I'm a, a monotheistic uh, believer in God. I don't really like the Trinity or I'm a Benetarian or any of those. I'm a modalist. I, I don't hear many of them saying I renounce gathering with you because you're a Trinitarian. I, but I often hear the reverse being true. We represent the Trinity. We're the majority. We've had this doctrine long. It's established. You can't believe that and be a Christian. And I, and I see that attack from the Trinitarian side more than I see it from the modalist side or the Benetarian or any of those other forms of understanding God. So I'm hoping that we can just reason together and step back a little bit and not step on each other's toes constantly over this thing and, and work through it. So... The unity and the freedom of being a Christian ought to reign. And we ought to have this, this, this freedom to think like we want. And I say this because at the end of the day, 
to cast people out of fellowship because they don't agree with a man-made confabulation is really spiritual immaturity. You know, uh, let's just say we're holding a church here and I say, as I'm teaching, how many people believe in the Trinity? And, you know, two-thirds of the people raise their hand and I say, you're fools, you're not Christian, get out of here. What if I say, how many people believe in the Trinity and two-thirds raise their hands and we say, all right, that's interesting. Uh, We're going to continue to learn about that and see, you know, your views as we share them with each other. And let's continue to love God and Christ and let's pursue them with all we've got and let the Spirit reign. Um, As I mentioned last time we were uh, met together and talked about the Trinity last Monday night, I only believe what what the Bible says about God and I don't believe what men interpret the Bible to say about God. Therefore, I don't embrace Oneness Pentecostal's version. Even though it sounds very close to what I believe, I, I don't believe the Mormon interpretation of God, a body of flesh and bone, as tangible as man's. Uh, I don't embrace the Trinitarian view of God or the Benetarian or any other man-made view. When I'm asked about God today, I cite the scripture. That's what I do. And I think that I ought to be And you ought to be allowed to do that, to cite the scripture. When someone says, what do you think about God? What's God? Say, well, let me just quote what the scripture says. And you read it and they say, well, what does that mean? It just means what it says. I ought to have the freedom to do that as a believer. And I'm trying to call out the dogmatists. And I'm trying to get you to believe, too, that dogma does not lend to the body's unity. It destroys it. Now, I know the dogmatists believe that their destruction is beneficial to the body, that we're cutting off a hand of the body that's teaching what they believe is false doctrine or believing false doctrine. But it isn't true as we all differ on so many different things, all of us. And so I think that ought to be remembered. I certainly have my own interpretation of Scripture when I put it together and I teach that. But when the rubber meets the road, If I meet somebody and they say, I agree with what scripture says about God, that's enough for me. You know, think about that for a second. Can you accept someone who says, I believe what scripture says about God when I read it? Can you accept that and them as a a brother or sister in Christ? And what I mean by this is I hope, and I hope you agree with this too, but I literally accept every single passage of scripture and what it says about God and Jesus Christ. As it reads in English, I accept it 100% hand to God. Every passage stands alone in my book. Every passage can be read in the context of the other passages and can be taken to the Bible as a whole. But when I read a single passage of Scripture, when it's talking about God and talking about Christ, talking about the Holy Spirit, I fully 100% accept what that passage says. And I think that has to be, you don't hear me saying, oh, I don't agree with that passage. No way, that that passage should be cut out and and not used. I believe every passage in what it says. And the man-made doctrine of the Trinity and other man-made doctrines about God, um, they demand that they teach me how to read the passages of Scripture that I say I, I, I love it and embrace. 
They don't agree for letting me read it and say it, I take it as it is. They say, no, you can't read it that way. You have to read it this way uh, and this way and this way in order to really understand what it's saying. So it strips me of my right to say when I read the Bible, I believe every passage and what it says. I don't get to say that in the way I approach it. I'm forbidden. I have to say, oh, that passage speaks of the Trinity. Oh, that's talking about the Trinity. Let me, oh, that, 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 you know, you can't read it that way. You have to read it this way. You understand? So that's the first response to the Trinity. I go by what the Bible actually says. So therefore, there's not a single passage of scripture that you could read me where I would say, I don't agree with that. I would say, I agree. I agree. And that's my definition of who God is by what the Bible says. All right. The second response to the Trinity is that, you know, by, because of my view of eschatology, I choose to trust what Jesus and his apostles actually say in the Bible, and this would mean about his return, and I do not trust how men interpret that I am supposed to, uh, on how I'm supposed to read the Bible. And this view says some very specific things that I have learned since I've been a Christian are not true. I have been taught the interpretation of what the Bible clearly says by men, and I've embraced it often. But I have found myself to be in error. So now I just read what the Bible says about what Jesus and the apostles say, and I say, I agree with that. And I don't try to mix it. I don't, I try very hard not to mix it. I just say, that's what it says relative to this, and I'm going to accept it. So what does the Bible say? It says the apostolic church was under fire when the apostles were alive. Did you know that it says that? So Jesus comes and he shares the good news and churches are being established. And the church that the living apostles, even the living Lord established that short period of time of, of Christianity, it was in trouble. That church was in trouble. The bride of Christ, which the gates of hell would not prevail against, was going to be rescued by Jesus. And as promised, the Bible says that. That within a generation, the Bible says within a generation, I take it as that, that anything that can be shaken in heaven or earth would be shaken, that there would be a new heaven and a new earth and a new age and a new Jerusalem, that God would write his laws upon people's hearts and minds and Jesus would reign over that kingdom and uh, it would dwell within them. Jesus says that the kingdom of God is within you. This is what the Bible says. I take it at face value. I don't think the kingdom of God is external. Jesus said my kingdom's not of this world. So I don't, I don't read what Jesus said to, to Pilate. My kingdom's not of this world and change it. I don't believe his kingdom is of this world. So I don't think the church office building for the Mormon church is part of his kingdom. That's of this world. And I think it can be shaken. In fact, it was. The angel Moroni's horn fell out of his hand. I don't think that South Mountain Church or Calvary Chapels or 
campus here is, is Jesus' kingdom. I think the kingdom is within believers. That's what the Bible says. I agree with what the Bible says. You see? So did you know that very early in that church that heretical ideas were popping up? Jesus said in Matthew 24, 4 through 5, Take heed that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name and many will deceive you. He goes on in that chapter and he says, they're going to say, come out to the desert and you can find him. Go into a secret chamber and you can find him. And Jesus tells Matthew, Mark, Luke, I mean, uh, Peter, James, John, and, and uh, Andrew, don't do it. Don't follow it. Many will come. So we know that that little church of the very few apostles and the very few believers were in great stress, even with the, the apostles there to guide it, who were full of the Holy Spirit. A couple decades after Jesus' death and resurrection, the Apostle Paul wrote that many believers, many believers in his day were already turning away to a different gospel. That's in Galatians 1.6. He also wrote in 2 Corinthians 11 that he was forced to contend with false apostles, deceitful workers who were fraudulently transforming themselves into apostles of Christ, and that there was a major problem in the church then, at that time, with false brethren. This is 20 years after Jesus ascended. The church was in trouble. These living apostles were having to spend most of their time contending against these false uh, prophets and teachers and everything else coming in, right? I have a point I'm going to make here. Stick with me. John's third epistle explains that the conditions had become so dire in his day that false ministers openly refused to receive John's representatives and actually were excommunicating true Christians from the church. That's what these false people were doing. And John, the beloved, still around. All of that was happening. I know I'm emphasizing this a lot. While Jesus' chosen, trained apostles were on the earth. This caused the famed historian Edward Gibbon to write, quote, A dark cloud hung over the first age of the church. Now imagine this. Jesus came, called and trained 12 apostles to oversee his little bride and to protect her until he returned for her. And even then, if the time wasn't shortened, according to Jesus' own words in Matthew 24, the very elect would have fallen. Jesus says that. And we're supposed to believe some cockamamie idea that the church that's supposed to be pure and without spot and was without living apostles is supposed to make it through the past 2,000 years? When the apostles were on the earth, they almost couldn't do it. It was almost wiped out. Just read what Jesus says to the churches in Asia Minor in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. So the apostles could not protect those wolves from entering in then. 
and all the and all the apostles die off. Jerusalem is destroyed, and people want to believe that the church brick and mortar religion is supposed to carry on through the centuries and just be, hey, it's all right. God is able to do it. We believe it. And we are the Catholics or we are the Orthodox or we are the Protestants or we are the uh, Mormons or whoever. Ha! Christ's little bride, I'm going to get to the point, pure and without spot, apostolically led and protected by a superabundance of the Holy Spirit hung on just long enough for him to come back when material religion was utterly destroyed, meaning all of Judaism, the consummate material religionists. After that, those heretics that had crept into the apostolic church, it wasn't long before true servants of God, because of those heretics and those wolves, and there weren't many left after the destruction of Jerusalem, became marginalized and scattered minorities of the groups that called themselves Christians, that were the offspring of these wolves that uh, crept in to bring in their heresies and doctrines and everything else. In fact, what stepped in once the bride was taken from the earth was a very different form of faith than... Uh, as it incorporated all sorts of practices and beliefs that were rooted in borrowed systems of religion during the day. And they call that syncretism and steadily transformed the faith established by Jesus and held upheld by his living apostles into the church of man. Now, this does not suggest that there wasn't true believers on the earth and there haven't always been true believers. And this doesn't support Mormonism's claim that there needed to be a restoration of a brick and mortar church to the earth. Not at all. God's believers have always been on earth. But religious organizations and institutionalized Christianity and brick and mortar, it ran amok once the last apostle disappeared from the face of the earth. And it's been that way ever since. By the time we get to 120 AD or about 50 years after the death of Paul, we find a church that in many aspects was very, very different from the days of Peter and Paul. And this fact should not surprise anyone since the church was under great assault when Peter and Paul were alive. We ignore that. And this very different church with both Catholic and Orthodoxy and Protestantism regale as good and true would only grow in corruption, false doctrine, false practices, more power, more influence, more political, more money, even to the point of dominating the entire Roman Empire. By the second century, faithful Members of the faith where God had written on their hearts had largely been scattered and distributed by waves of deadly persecution. And it was at this time that the major divides started to happen in the scene of the so-called Christian community. Major divides started to creep in. And this became the setting. This became the setting for the creation of the Trinity.
post-apostolic church, post-Christ, certainly, post-destruction uh, uh, of Titus, 70 AD, this became the, the ground for this doctrine that we are commanding each other to embrace today. In other words, new beliefs began to replace the teachings of the original church bride as genuine believers were either driven into hiding or they had become politicized, secularly motivated, or embracing systematized dogmas created by human agendas. This is where church entered into political debates. But this brings us to a really important realization. Please hear this. By the time this mass of different beliefs and stuff had come together under the auspices of the church, what was being debated within that was not truth versus error, which is how many, many people try to teach it. It was truth versus error. No, no, no. What What was being debated in the councils that started cropping up was error versus error. And if you understand that, you can understand that while when we accept these errors passed down as decisions by inspired men, we can see that the foundation of them was error to begin with. And let me explain that. An example was a dispute in A.D. uh, 325. Note how much time has passed since Jesus ascended, since Jerusalem's been destroyed, since the last living apostle was walking the earth. 325 A.D. Imagine what was going on there. Error versus error. How much garbage has collected on the the curb of so-called Christianity And we come into this problem with the nature of Christ, 325 AD. Before we go on, allow yourself to just stop and rethink. Jesus warned about wolves. The apostles said that those wolves and heretics and false brethren were present in their day. Jesus rescues his pure, unwrinkled bride and destroys Jerusalem all within a 40-year period of time. And 280 years later, a dispute rises up among all the men who call themselves Christians over the nature of Christ. 280 years, are you kidding me? And the apostles could barely hold on for 40 years, and religious men today want to believe that 280 years passed and those people's thinking didn't get messed up? That it wasn't error against error at that time and by that time? Anyway, the setting for this first dispute was not a scene for true Christianity doing all it could to keep the faith pure. It was set in an empire overseen by a sun worshiper. His name was Constantine, who errantly is called by Roman Catholicism and others as the first Christian Roman emperor. We do that out of convenience to make what he did and his story make some sense. 
Just to show you how Christian Constantine was, after the First Council in 325 AD, which he convened as a means to accomplish something political, he had his wife and own child murdered. They say he was a Christian, but after he established the First Council, he goes and he kills his wife and his own son. That's not a believer. That's not someone who was following Christ. This was not under the auspices of let's establish the truth, truth against error in this council. Not at all. Constantine was an emperor and emperors do not like unrest and upheaval among their subjects. But he was smart enough to rescue, to realize the value among Christianity and the unity that he could pull if he could just take all of these masses. And remember, the true believers were outside of that. They were scattered from persecution. That it, was the, it was the politicized believers then. Constantine looked out over them and said, I, I, we've got to put them together and unify. I saw a cross in the sky. He's a sun worshiper. And after I say we're going to be a Christian nation, I'm going to go slaughter my wife and son. God, I mean... He's smart enough to re uh, recognize the value of the Christian religion and to unite it, so he got to work. But before he could effectively use Christianity to unite his empire, they had to settle a bitter battle that was raging at the time, the doctrine of God. Constantine, he's got his God. He's killing family members, but he wants the Christians figure this thing out. What do you believe? Now, I'm no scholar and I'm no emperor, but it seems to me that the doctrine of God is plainly explained, plainly, by Paul in 1 Corinthians 8, 6, who said, but to us there is but one God, the Father, of whom are all things and we in him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things and we by him. I don't know. That sounds like a, a passage that makes God one God, only one God, the Father. But that passage somehow didn't suit all of those Christians in their, in their political ways under Constantine. And so they had to have some fighting going on. They had to have some amalgamation, etc. So either that passage Paul wrote is true or it's false. You tell me. I read it and I say, that's true. I read every passage and say, that's true. You tell me. If it's true... All other takes are faulty. I say there's one God, the Father, and one Lord Jesus Christ. Does that suffice? But if I add, but I don't really get or buy the Trinity, suddenly I'm not a brother. Suddenly I'm cast out. I read the Bible. I believe what it says. Think about this. We need peace. But not peace in demanded doctrine. We need peace in the spirit of love to unify us amidst our differences. Why it took a council of, 280, of men 280 years after material religion was destroyed and God began to write his laws on the hearts and minds of those who are his to create a new definition of God, I don't know. But that's what they did. 280 years later, 325, yeah, 280 years later in the year A.D. 325. 
Why the Roman Catholic Church has tried to perpetuate material religion, I don't know. Why the Protestants tried to reform material religion or why the Mormons have tried to restore material religion, we can only guess at the motives behind all three of those. But they all did and all have and the formalization of those efforts have all splintered and divided and corrupted easy to understand biblically based beliefs like there is one God, the Father and one Savior, uh, the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So Constantine conceived what is called the Council of Nicaea in 325 as much for political reasons to unify the empire as religious ones. And the primary issue at that time became known as the Arian Controversy. Arius was a priest. That's a problem to begin with, don't you think? That he was a priest? Do you know that you read the New Testament? You don't read the word priest unless it's associated with the house of Israel and working in temples? And that we as collectively are a body of priests because of faith? But to have the office of a priest? So a priest named Arius, that's a problem right there. He shows up from Alexandria, Egypt, and he taught that Christ, because he was the son of God, must have had a beginning. Well, if he's a son, he has a father, therefore he's had a beginning, and therefore he is uh, a special creation of God. And he also taught that Jesus was a son. By necessity, there was an order. The father's older. He's the son, therefore he's created. This was Arian, the priest. He teaches this. Of course, it's errant compared to what Scripture says. Not right. But opposing Arius was a guy named Athanasius. He was a deacon. Now, deacons in the Bible, they were called to be waiters of tables. That meant cleaning up the plastic bottles that Sean leaves on the table and collecting the donations that people are giving to the early church that was under persecution, the cheerful donations, not tithes, and give it to the widows. That's what deacons did. But suddenly, 280 years out from, or around that time, out from Jesus comes a guy named Athanasius who decides that his job as a deacon isn't to wait tables and serve people. It's to come up with another doctrine. So Athanasius pops up. And he's from Alexandria, Egypt. And his view was an earlier form of Trinitarianism where the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit are one, but at the same time distinct from each other. Boom! We have error and error underneath the umbrella of Constantine seeking for unity, coming up in a war amidst a whole group of people who have been left with their own devices and not following the Spirit and what the word says and what God has written on their heart it's become politicized. We've got a priest and we've got uh, Arius, a deacon. Historian, author Christian Gifford wrote, Mick Gifford wrote, in the hope of securing for his throne the support of the growing body of Christians to whom he had shown considerable favor, it was to his interest, Constantine's, to have the church vigorous and united. The Arian controversy was threatening its unity and menacing its strength. He, Constantine, therefore undertook 
to put an end to the trouble, end quote. It's exactly right. And suddenly we have men and councils and groups and emperors who worship the sun and kill their family deciding, how are we going to explain God? I go back to Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 8, but no, that's not good enough. Interestingly, it is believed by some scholars that when the church council was held, people didn't embrace Arius's view or Athanasius's view and that there were all sorts of other views bouncing around too. So we can see that doctrinally the church was in serious trouble. Actually, it was like in stage four cancer trouble relative to it was in stage one cancer trouble when the apostles were on the earth, when the apostles were there. Now it's in stage four. And we rely on what those guys decided to tell us the nature of God over what scripture plainly says when you read it. In any case, with Constantine's approval, the council rejected the minority view of Arius, but nothing definitive with which to replace it, so they approved the minority view of Athanasius. That's how it worked. Both were minority views. And the so-called church was left in the odd position of officially supporting from that point forward the decision made at Nicaea and the groundwork for official acceptance of the Trinity. And it was now in place three centuries after Jesus Christ's death and resurrection. The Council of Nicaea did not end the controversy. Uh, Constantine was pleased, but no unanimity was established. Therefore, the bishops, who? The bishops? Who are these? The bishops went on teaching as they had before, and the Arian crisis continued for another 60 years. 60 years. Athanasius, listen to this, was exiled five times at least because it was difficult to get his creed to stick. So the guy who came up with a minority opposition to Arius was exiled out, excommunicated out at least five times because the people are like, we don't get that either. That was the Trinitarian doctrine, or at least the beginning of it. But it certainly espoused what the Trinitarians claim uh, the Trinity is today. The great historian Will Durant writing and speaking about the aftermath violence that occurred because of this infighting, violence. He wrote, probably more Christians were slaughtered by Christians in these two years, 342 to 343, than by all the persecutions of Christians by pagans in the history of Rome. So now we have Christians killing each other This is the groundwork, the foundation for this thing you're calling the Trinity that you embrace. They're murdering each other over who's right and who's wrong. Does that sound like Christianity to you? Does that sound like opening up the Bible, reading a passage and saying, I agree with that? No. Professor Harold Brown, I'm almost done, says, During the middle decades of this century, from 340 to 380, 
The history of doctrine looks more like the history of court and church intrigues and social unrest. The central doctrines hammered out in this period often appear to have been put through by intrigue or mob violence rather than by the common consent of Christendom led by the Holy Spirit. But like most things religious and most things from groupthink, they start off as questionable, they cause violence, they become acceptable when the fight gets wearisome, then they become unquestionable, and then they become totally enforceable, demanded dogmas that must be kept by all or you're cast out. Don't trust me. Uh, don't ever use my thoughts for your, dog, for your dogma. But think, let the Spirit guide. Read the Bible for what it says. What it says. It's hard to do if you've been taught the Trinity. Hard to do if you've been taught to be a Mormon. But read what it says. Take it to God by the Spirit. One final thing. Tomorrow night, we're going to go through all the passages that people use to support the Trinity. I've used the ones to show why I don't believe it's true last week. Tomorrow night, Tuesday night, I'm going to go through the passages that are used, and I'm going to show you how I see those, that I read them, and this is how I see it. And tune in. I'll answer your question. Well, what about when it says this? Or what about when it says that? I'll tell you what I see when I read that passage in English. And then you can criticize that view or not, but at least you'll hear a response from someone who does seek truth like you do relative to the ontology or makeup of God. So write your comments below. Check us out tomorrow night as we're going to get to those comments. Email us if, if you want at sean at aletheamedia.com. You can also write comments on Facebook. Uh, I don't know what the website is. Or I don't know how to go. Look in the description below. Look in the description below. I'm almost getting used to saying that. And uh, God bless you. We'll see you tomorrow night here on Heart of the Matter.